Welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show and the variety of eye and ear opening guests we bring to you on a regular basis. We're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes as well. And our listenership is increasing all the time. Unfortunately, as I repeat every single time, it's my mantra at this stage. So are the associated costs. We rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising free format and are very, very grateful for any help that you can offer at all. We put no fixed cost on the donations and every little bit helps. So if you could spare even the price of a bottle of water every month, isn't it ridiculous that we buy water in bottles? But we do. So if you could spare the price of a bottle of water every month, this would go a long, long way towards keeping us afloat. An interesting aside here in Ireland, one of the reasons we drink so much bottled water, well, certainly that I do, is because the water from the taps is fluoridated. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Get following and interacting with us with all your feedback, guest suggestions and other input. So, on to the show. Today's guest is Scott Onstott. Scott graduated from UC Berkeley with a bachelor's degree in architecture. He began his career doing manual drafting and later gained experience in several prominent engineering, architecture and interiors firms in San Francisco. He's taught over 45 semester courses at three Bay Area colleges and has written and edited dozens of technical computer books. Scott is also the maker of Secrets in Plain Sight, a video exploration of art, architecture and urban design, which unveils an unlikely intersection of geometry, politics, numerical philosophy, religious mysticism, new physics, music, astronomy and world history. On today's show we'll be talking about Secrets in Plain Sight and of course his newer written works as well. So Scott, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? Things are good. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. You're based in British Columbia in Canada. What are things like there at the moment? Well, it's sunny. It's a beautiful morning. Um, enjoying the weather well for once I can say I can relate to that weather I'm in Ireland about 50 miles south of Dublin and we have temperatures of over 25 degrees Celsius which is uh, almost unheard of in this country so I'm in great form today we're going to have a fantastic chat obviously about the work that it is you do but for those that mightn't know Scott there's a question I ask everybody who comes on the show and that's how did you get from where you were any kind of starting point you like to where you are now Okay. Um, well, I, I started out, um, I got a degree in architecture at University of California, Berkeley. Um, I worked in, in architecture for about six to seven years in San Francisco. Um, I started teaching uh, students um, architectural software at the Academy of Art University. Did that for a number of years, started writing uh, technical books um, on AutoCAD and uh, Photoshop eventually moved to a remote island in Canada and while I've been here I've uh, you know read a lot of interesting books and opened my mind to uh, alternative possibilities and eventually that led to me creating the secrets in plain sight video series and let's talk about that video series for a second a lot of people will be familiar with it but some may not be so how did your ideas for that come about and were you surprised by how quickly it took off and the popularity that it subsequently gained 
I, I have been surprised by the popularity of it. Um, I think there's almost four million people now who've who've seen it, and um, I get comments all the time from people who, you know, it's really meant a lot to them. It's been kind of a transformative uh, film or set of films. Um, at first, though, for the first six months, uh, almost no one saw it. It wasn't until I had my first interview with Henrik Palmgren on Red Ice Radio mm-hmm. that I was sort of discovered. And then it, the popularity has just been growing ever since. And I've done, uh, I think, something like 18 to 20 interviews um, to date on, on Secrets in Plain Sight. And I've written a couple of books on it as well. I've, ri- I've written a book called Taking Measure, Explorations in, in Number, Architecture, and Consciousness. And I just published a book called Quantification, and it's a, a book of illustrations or, or diagrams that uh, basically get to the heart of, of what I've been discovering in Secrets in Plain Sight. That is, these uncanny connections or comparisons that I, I seem to be able to uncover in the world in, in terms of sacred geometry, distances between sacred sites, um, interesting comparisons, and mathematical codes. And there are some fascinating discoveries that you have made over the years. Um, and of course, quantification is something that will fascinate a lot of people because it's so visual. And it's almost like, uh, for me, I think, a combination of, be- of the video and the book. I think some people find books a little bit more difficult than watching visual presentations because I think the, uh, the visual stuff is a little bit more passive and people are quite comfortable with that. So. Let's talk about Secrets in Plain Sight first off before we speak about the books. And you've mentioned the reaction to it already, but what made you decide to actually do this? Because obviously you were making your own discoveries and uncovering bits and pieces, and you were familiar with uh, a lot of other people's works at work as well. But what made you decide to actually knuckle down and produce this for yourself and put it out there? Well, the catalyst was really a conversation I had with an intuitive named Marcia Schaefer. And she told me that, um, she, well, she basically had access to my higher self, if you will. And she told me it was very clear that I was going to be um, becoming a video producer. And at the, at the time, she, she didn't know what the subject was or what, I, you know, what kind of movie I would make. Mm-hmm. But it, that was uh, for sure I was going to do that. And I hung up the phone with her. That was in 2009. And I really was dumbfounded. <laughs> wow, what am I going to do? And uh, I was at kind of a crossroads in my life, and I, I felt like I needed a new direction. And um, that catalyzed me to doing some soul searching to find out uh, what if I was going to make a movie, what would it be about? And then I, I sort of got a download um, of the script of Secrets in Plain Sight Volume 1 very quickly. And in a month's time or so, I had written the whole thing. And then uh, it just took me, um, you know... The, the remainder of an entire year to to put it all together and do all the technical side of making the movie. That's a really, really quick length of time. I mean, you must have shocked yourself with that. I really was. I was uh, kind of amazed. Um, I, I, I put in uh, more work, I think, than I've ever done on any project uh, in architecture or, or in training, uh, training videos. I... Um, I just devoted to the creating secrets in plain sight because I could really only afford to take a year off. Mm. My business was, was doing well at the time with uh, selling uh, tutorial videos. And so I had a little a luxury to, uh, to take some time off and, and do this creative project. 
and it, it came together. Um, yeah, it took me exactly one year. And then I made volume two um, the following year, um, the following couple of years, I guess it took me. Um, and um, see, volume one is, is almost four hours long, so mm. it's, it's really like a double feature um, that I've given away free. It's on YouTube. And then volume two is an, an hour and a half, and it's a, it, you, that one is only available if you, if you purchase it. And it's sort of a, a deepening in a, uh, of the message and secrets in Plain Sight Volume 1. And tell us a little bit, for those who mightn't have seen any of the videos yet, about the information that's contained therein as a kind of a starting point and a framework then for the conversation that we're having. Okay, yes. Yeah, so secrets in Plain Sight is about patterns in art, architecture, urban design, and the cosmos. Um, I, I look at all kinds of things in, in the series and um, look at in all over the Western world primarily and uh, notice these uncanny patterns and alignments between sacred sites. Um, it's kind of hard to, for me to uh, summarize it all in a, in a very brief uh, statement. Um, it's really a, it's a gateway into a wealth of information. It's a different way of looking at the world noticing these so-called secrets in plain sight that are that are there all around but you just maybe haven't perceived them it absolutely is and just to jump forward a little bit there was one chapter of the book taking measure explorations in number architecture and consciousness that really stood out to me and i have heard you speak about it before but i think it will be fascinating to a lot of people so to give people a kind of an example it's the chapter entitled honeycomb and apple which is basically about the relationship of six to five so for anyone new to this information i think if we have a little chat about that it might kind of whet the appetite and show people just how fascinating the most seemingly normal or mundane things that we take for granted can actually be. So tell us about that relationship and where Honeycomb and an Apple come in. Okay, um, basically in my work I get into number quality um, in addition to quantity, but quality is, is the essential nature of, of numbers themselves. And that's what I'm kind of getting into in, in that chapter, The Honeycomb and the Apple. Um, I have a copy of the book here. I'm just going to look through it. It's um, the, when you, Basically, when you look at five, it is the apple. If you cut an apple across its equator, you have a, a, a pentagram. Um, I, it's an uncommon thing to do, and I suggest you try it. You, there's a beautiful pentagram inside every apple. It's sort of the secret about the apple. And it makes me even wonder about the symbolism of the of the forbidden fruit, and uh, you know the sort of the secret inside is, is the pentagram. And it it to me it the pentagram resonates with all things that are alive. It's all it, it's all about that. Whereas six is more of a structural um, kind of thing, and and I I symbolize that with the honeycomb, just recognizing the hexagonal pattern uh, there. Uh, every, everything from something as small as a honeycomb up to the up to the uh, the giant hexagon on the north pole of Saturn. Mm. Uh, another example of six, but basically six boils down to being a structural element, something that's the background for life. And so when we compare six and five by taking a simple ratio of six over five, a whole um, host of of uh, nu numerical curiosities come about. Um, for example, um, 
let's see, 6 over 5 times phi squared is approximately equal to pi. So there's kind of a mathematical connection between two of the most important numbers in math. Yeah. And then uh, 6 fifths times 33,333,333 meters is equivalent to the Earth's polar circumference. And uh, that kind of is a connection to the repetitive digits phenomenon that I uh, talk about a lot, where you, f you find a string of threes or fours or fives or what, what, what have you. They seem to be kind of a key to uh, getting in deeper into the numerical basis of reality. In my philosophy, I sort of share my ideas with ancient philosophers such as Pythagoras, who looked at um, number as really the bedrock of the universe. And many observers would claim that numbers are, I suppose, the universal language, that anybody can decode them, irrespective of uh, what your native tongue might be. Would you kind of agree with that? And do you think it's a language that extends far deeper and far further than any um, language based on an alphabet might do? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and um, number and geometry are really the universal language. You know, if, if there were... Um, people on another planet, they would presumably communicate most effectively using, uh, if they were trying to communicate with us, say, they might communicate using geometry or number, because it is such a universal. Um, however, language uh, also uh, has a numerical basis, and there are many traditions, such as gematria, where you can convert uh, each letter into a numerical value, and uh, that, it, by doing so you can get down to its numeric equivalent. There's also the uh, a, a way of looking at um, reality using a lens called the quadrivium and traditionally that is uh, those are four arts number theory, music geometry and astronomy and, and another way of thinking about that all boils down to number so number theory is number in itself Geometry is number in space, music is number in time, and astronomy, or rather the manifest universe, is number in space and time. So the common link is numerology there. That's right. Exactly. Number, it's like Pythagoras said, all is number. And in some way, there's really profound truth in that. And there seems to be, and I find it fascinating, the link with um with i suppose the language that we use today be it english or french or whatever you might use but the spoken language and numerology because that's something that not many people are aware of and we've had we've had marty Leeds on the show before and he goes into this in some depth but there's a big crossover between the work that you guys do so what can you tell us about how the uh, how the patterns are discovered and how they're formulated? Because it's not something that everybody can immediately see. And I'm fascinated as to how it was that these patterns were discovered in the first place. So what's your experience, Scott? Well, it's sort of a mysterious process how things get discovered or how I discover things. Um, I don't know. I don't exactly know. Um, it, it just I'm following my intuition. And sometimes I'll just have a, a little niggling sense that I need to measure the distance between two significant sites, or I should calculate the area of something, or it, whatever it is. 
it's just a kind of a gut feeling or a hunch and um it's really it would be very easy to ignore that kind of feeling because it is so quiet and subtle mm. but um i've been i've been totally blown away by um by this sense for example just the other day i had a sense that i should really take a look at cleopatra's needle in london and I had a sense that I should measure the distance between there, the location of of the ancient Egyptian obelisk there on the uh, Victoria Embankment, and and measure the distance from there to uh, where it used to be in Alexandria, Egypt. Hmm. And I, I was totally blown away because um, that distance is exactly three thousand three hundred thirty-three point three three kilometers. Well, there are all the trees again. We're seeing this recurring time and time again when you link sites. That's right. Um, and, and so when I see something like that, I just, I'm just i totally blown away. It's like, how could that... That's so non-random, you know? And yet, when you start to ask, how could that be? Then you, can, there, you kind of run into a lot of problems because um, it seems kind of implausible that they would have measured that distance so exactly and... and been able to place the obelisk there in London. And, and if you think about it a little more, you realize, okay, well, the position of London is really calling into question there. It's not just the position of the obelisk within the city. It's it's the actual general location of the city. And so, you, you know, I don't think there's a conspiracy there where somebody located London, you know, thousands of years ago in relation to this ancient Egyptian obelisk. But nevertheless, that that distance sort of um, shows you that there's consciousness involved. It's not random. And so then, you know, you're led to speculate about how could that be? Was it aliens that did it? Was it higher dimensional beings who encode these things? Um, I don't really have an answer to that. I can only speculate. Well, but I think it's really fascinating to to kind of ponder these questions. I think let's speculate on it for a while because when you look at the work that it is you're doing and the number of correlations that you draw, so for example, Alexandria in London, and you've, you've all these seemingly far off, off places. I know there are a lot of links with uh, ancient sites in Ireland and Egypt and again and all over the world, and it happens time and time again, and the same numbers are recurring all the time. And it's, it's way beyond coincidence. A lot of people believe in coincidence, but I mean, there comes a time where you have to say, no, there, there's something at play or at work here that we don't really understand. So as somebody who has had, I suppose you've been at the coal face for so long with examining the patterns, how would you care to speculate or in what direction would you care to speculate with regard to the, w- what was taken and what knowledge must have been held by whoever it was was responsible for what went on years and years ago? Because there's always this assumption that we're at the pinnacle of civilization now and we know everything that there is to know and we certainly know everything that came before. But that's clearly not the case. So what do you think went on, Scott? Well, this is total speculation, but I, I think that our our ancestors um, understood the world in a completely different modality than we do today. Mm-hmm. And their understanding was, it had much more wisdom in it. Yeah. Um, rather than the, the data that we seem to have accumulated today, they understood things in a more comprehensive and uh, systematic way. Um, 
so we I get hints of that by looking at ancient metrology in, in these in these um, positions of monuments that um, someone certainly understood that and it, it gets into um, I guess your own philosophy um, if you believe that everything is physical and there and there's nothing beyond the physical nothing if everything is made of atoms then the wisdom had to come from our ancestors or from physical aliens right yeah but but if you're open to um, more uh, subtle realms where where there could be intelligences that are, that are more like spirits then um, the wisdom could have come from from these other beings and, and been passed to our human ancestors um, I don't know but I noticed that um, even in my own life um, I will un- unwittingly encode something and then be blown away by it um, and I think that's kind of the mechanism that, that happens quite often I think a lot of architects will design a building in a certain way and they might not even be aware um, of the, the incredible things they've encoded in there. Uh, at least that, that's my kind of working hypothesis. So there is something subconscious at work there, you reckon? Yeah, I think that consciousness, um, actually I think that the universe is consciousness. Mm. And that, um, this is my personal opinion, I guess, that... Um, we have it completely 180 degrees backwards. We think that consciousness emerges in the brain and that, that there's a real world out there. I kind of look at it the opposite way, that the world is something that we've imagined and that there's only really one being here and that we're, we've imagined all of the universe in its incredible complexity, including the whole cast of characters, including Scott. Scott is a kind of fiction that has been imagined um, and if if you can follow me there the, uh, that um, way of looking at reality would explain all of these strange numerical coincidences that we seem to find because that's the way we've imagined everything was using number and geometry and it makes sense that we'd have these sort of harmonics at different scales that reveal that fact and to look at those harmonics with, for example, the alphabet that we use on an everyday basis, it's, it's fascinating to look at some of the work that's been done on decoding letters and numbers. And as you say, it all stems back to numbers. But even the language that is used, for example, when we spell a word, even the word itself, to, to, the spell, to cast the spell. And there is so much evidence, again, beyond coincidence, that when language was first developed or formed that there is a hidden message or a hidden consciousness in there or subconsciousness even that means that we're constantly using a code or a spell without even being aware of it on an everyday basis and that has some kind of effect on everyone else around us and everything else around us which could possibly explain why it is that an architect designs a building and that because they speak English and that code has been passed down to them it's, it's embedded in them on the conscious level as well as the subconscious which you've mentioned what, what do you think about that? I think that that's the way it is yeah um, yeah we're we're just slowly becoming aware of these of these things that are hidden in plain sight and we often kind of assume that that we're responsible for them but ultimately we are if you if you if you subscribe to the 
the notion that that all is consciousness um, after all we're responsible for the whole universe but our physical minds and bodies aren't necessarily responsible for these patterns and yet we're inextricably connected with them it, it's it's kind of a, a mystery and a beautiful work of art at the same time it is and it's absolutely fascinating because whether we realize it or not we are a part of that and are creating all the time using these codes that's right and um my work is is just kind of scratching the surface of of those codes that seem to be around us in such profusion and i find it when i discover something like that uh, cleopatra's needle example i really have a good feeling it's like wow the universe is <laughs> patterned in this incredible way and it's even using the units of measure that w that we're using today it's just unbelievable fascinating in itself and you speak about things like the decimal system and these these systems that were devised to measure and again the coincidences continue there so let's talk about that for a little while for example the relationships between particular units and other units that we use i mean we would imagine that they would have no link and that they're just put in place to make things easier for us or for commerce or whatever it might be but the patterns all remain and they're steadfast so, so what are some of these patterns and how have they been uncovered? Well, let me give you an example of that um, using the Great Pyramid as uh, the key. Um, if you look at the Great Pyramid's elevation, it forms a triangle. And the, the angles, the two base angles are, are equal. They're 51 degrees, 51 minutes. Hmm. And if you were to draw that triangle across the Earth so that the base was across the equator of the Earth and then draw the uh, the rest of the triangle the point of the, the the you know the apex of the pyramid would be above the earth in fact if you were to bring the moon down to the surface of the earth and and draw it there tangent to the earth circle um, the uh, the apex of the pyramid would go right to the center of the moon so the pyramid is kind of a key to uh, the earth moon system and that knowledge is geometric but it also connects with different units of measure so for example if you measure the um, the combined diameters of earth and moon going through the poles that is equal to 10,000 times phi kilometers and that's super accurate that's 99.97 percent accurate so that's a beautiful thing. 10,000 kilometers times phi is equal to the combined polar diameters of moon and earth. Now, what, that's so beautiful. It's so it's such an even number. It seems like perhaps uh, that is how the metric system came about, even though there's a, um, the met, we know from history that the metric system was designed just using the earth, and uh, measuring the distance around um, the surface of the Earth from the equator to the pole was defined as 10,000 kilometers. So you can just think about that geometrically, that that kind of quarter arc is equal to the combined rate, um, distances of um, diameters of Earth and Moon. And then um, this system also encodes miles. Um, the actual um, base perimeter of the Great Pyramid is 1,007.7 yards. 
and the um, mean diameters of moon and earth that is uh, accommodating the equatorial bulge of the earth so the mean diameters of moon and earth is 10,077 miles so it uses the same digits as the um, the Great Pyramid's base perimeter 10077 miles compared to 1007.7 yards so it's it's you know changing scales changing units but it's the digits that themselves that are significant and that's what I find in my work is that it's the numbers that matter and they in some way they're scale invariant and even unit invariant um, it, it, it's really strange in a way but it seems to be the way that things are done it's almost like a number game that has been played on us or through us to encode these units of measure um, another example um, connecting the earth with these repetitive threes is that the um, the sun is 333,000 times more massive than the earth and the Earth's diameter bulges 0.33% beyond a perfect circle, and the Earth's orbit of the Sun bulges 3.3% beyond a perfect circle. Amazing. <laughs> we have 33 bones in our spine. So there, there's a lot of examples like that. Like in um, religion, Jesus lived for 33 and a third years, and he is said to have performed 33 miracles and in Buddhism, the Great Retreat lasts for three years, three months, and three days. So these repetitive threes are a kind of key to understanding the universe. Um, and I find uh, so many examples of these things in di different areas. Um, for example, um, the speed of sound. Uh, the speed of sound in air varies with temperature. And it turns out that... Um, the speed of sound at 3.3 degrees Celsius is equal to 333.3 meters per second. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's absolutely <laughs> crazy. And the more, you, the more examples that you give, the crazier it gets. Because I think many of us, including myself, we, we start from this kind of base uh, assumption that everything is just random. But when you throw out these so-called coincidences or coincidences as many people would perceive them it just it becomes an impossibility that they are coincidental because they appear time and time again and no matter how small the example or how big for example you, you've gone as far as the sun there they just happen over and over and over again and presumably our ancestors knew stuff that we don't know or that some kind of information or knowledge that we've lost so do you think it has been lost? Because I have my doubts personally, because you do see, um, again, these kind of occult links and these similarities with ancient structures occurring again and again and again in modern society and modern buildings and structures and that kind of thing as well. So do you think there has been a protection of that knowledge or a deliberate hiding of the knowledge? Or what's the situation there as you see it, Scott? Well, I, I think that the Freemasons um, trace their intellectual you know heritage back to ancient Egypt and it seems that everything in my research points back to ancient Egypt and I would speculate that 
the knowledge of ancient Egypt actually came from a, a previous human civilization that Plato called Atlantis. And basically, this not, they, at that time, they understood things, like, like I was saying before, in a more holistic, systematic way, that um, they understood sort of how the, the, the puzzle pieces fit together in a much more satisfying way than we, we tend to, to do today. Mm-hmm. And bits of that knowledge have been passed down, such as the significance of the number 33, and that's echoed in the Scottish Rite, that being the highest degree. Um, and um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that people understand really the significance of that now. It, it's like, it's almost like we have these fragments of knowledge. And it, it's our job now to kind of try to reverse engineer that or, or piece it back together. Once in a while, the pieces kind of fit together and you go, aha, that's how it is. I get it. And and it seems like a great advancement um when when these when these pieces fit together. But it's a work in progress. Um I feel like in some way I'm I'm helping in my part to reconstruct an ancient art and science. I think so. And you've spoken in the past about Masonic trigger numbers and since you have mentioned Freemasonry there, let's talk about them for a little bit because there are numbers that come up time and time again and you have linked them to um, to Freemasonic buildings and structures and lots of other stuff there as well. So what is a trigger number for starters for anybody who mightn't have heard of one before? A trigger number? I don't really use that term but I think you mean a, a, a number of significance such as 33. Exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so the way I, I classify it is, is um, basically there are repetitive digits 33 is one example. 666 is another such example. Um, But there's also something that I call the cosmic sequence, and that is um, a sequence of a discrete number of terms, not too many. It starts with the number 27, and then each subsequent term is the double. So 27, 54, 108, 216, 432, 864, 1728 and 3456. So this so-called cosmic sequence has incredible resonance with the universe and I, I, I wrote a blog post called The Cosmic Sequence that goes into that in some detail. So that's another code or key to the universe in addition to the, the repetitive digits. And also another one would be um, transcendental numbers such as pi or e and also the golden uh, the golden number phi i would include in that list as being um keys to um yeah a lot of the symbolism and architecture that i find when when i do an analysis of the of the architecture i find these keys um for example, um, I think one of the most significant things in my book, Quantification, has to do with uh, analysis of the Great Pyramid's um, elevation. And if you, if you, um, there's a couple ways of doing it that I show, but uh, perhaps the easiest way for for spoken word is just to explain uh, if you inscribe an equilateral triangle inside that elevation, mm-hmm. the edge length just so happens to be. 555.5 feet 
and that is equal to 6,666 inches. And so um, here we see this, this repetitive digit key ap appearing within the Great Pyramid in imperial units. And, uh, you know, the origins of the imperial system of measure, at least they go back to the 16th century, but we kind of are at a loss um, to finding when that was invented. But it, it seems really implausible that feet and inches and miles would be would go back thousands of years further to the Great Pyramid. And yet, here I find this encoded in there. You know, um, it just seems so clear that these units were used at that time. And perhaps they were lost and rediscovered. I, I don't know. But there they are. It does seem absolutely astonishing. Yeah, and you know, John Greaves, who lived a generation before Isaac Newton, surveyed the Great Pyramid. And he came to the conclusion that it, the English foot was at the root of its measurement system. As implausible as that sounds. But so, there you have it. So could it be that whatever measurement was used was then adopted at a later stage by the British Empire or... I mean, it's very hard to say. As you say, there is a huge amount of reverse engineering that is involved there to try and decode exactly what it is or to transcribe the meaning of what's going on. Because it's, That's right. uh, it's, it's all embedded in there. You know, um, Isaac Newton um, was the, the guy who, who figured out the equation of gravity, mm. you know. And he, he, wanted to, he studied the Great Pyramid because he thought it would encode the dimensions of the Earth. And if he could find the actual size of the Earth, then he could calculate his gravitational constant, what he called G. So um, one thing I wanted to point out was that um, I was looking into the, the gravitational constant G, and um, recent, a recent measurement that was published, I think it was in, published in Science, was um, they, they did a more accurate um, calculation of, of the gravitational constant. And, and they gave a value with a tolerance, you know, of a, of a very small amount. Like, it could be within between these two numbers. Well, within that tolerance is the value 6.666 times 10 to the negative 11th, um, which I found really interesting that actually gravity could be a repetitive string of sixes. And that really would be kind of satisfying to me in that these physical constants actually are using these codes, you know? And again, th these codes, in particular the number six, it seems to appear in so many different places that you would imagine have no links. For example, a barcode or the World Wide Web, the www and the link to Hebrew there with the number six. It, they're just absolutely everywhere. So whether it's something organic or something man-made, it just seems to occur over and over again. That's right. Um, and so I take notice of that, that, that type of pattern occurring, and I, I kind of keep that in my own sort of mental database. And then when I see it happen again, I, I'll then make a comparison and say, okay, um, that's significant. That's essentially sort of at, at the core of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm recognizing patterns, and I, I'm able to recognize patterns in different phenomena that most people would would immediately disregard because 
they would say, oh, that's just, used, you know, the Great Pyramid couldn't be encoded in feet and inches, so I'm not going to think about that. But why not? Why not just open your mind to these possibilities and then sort of amazing harmonies or resonances occur? Yes, I think so. And so many of them seem to be then in harmony with the earth and celestial bodies and that kind of thing. So it's not just men building things or women building things on the surface of the earth that are linked. And what fascinates me about that is it's almost like you're building a map and it's like a fractal map. And correct me if I'm wrong here. This is just my perception of the work that you do and that others do along these lines. It's almost like a kind of a, a, an organic fractal that appears using numbers instead of physical drawings or patterns. So if people look at uh, the, the shape of a tree and then the shape of the veins on a leaf, quite often they're extremely similar. So if you look at the relationship between the example you gave earlier, Cleopatra's needle in London and e um, Alexandria in Egypt, or the sun and the moon, or the sun and the earth in relation to the moon, all these things, it's like a fractal patter pattern begins to emerge. And for me, it has to go beyond the physical and it has to go into a kind of a universal and then conscious realm. Is that, would that be linear with your way of thinking with regard to the bigger picture and the pieces of the jigsaw that you are starting to put together, Scott? Yes, I, I, I agree. I think um, basically this type of information um, guides you to, to seeing um, that, that these patterns aren't random and that they come from consciousness and that the only way they really could happen is if everything was patterned by consciousness. And, you know, depending on your outlook, you can view that as the work of God or the work of demons or um, you can look at it as I said earlier that the universe is consciousness um, or you can also have more of a conspiratorial attitude that it the Freemasons are doing this or the Illuminati is doing it or the Archons are behind it it's really um, quite um, diverse in how people feel about these things but it does get you to ask these deeper questions and I think if I'm a success, then that's what I'm succeeding at, is getting people to look beyond the physical and to question reality a little bit more and say, wow, there's really something more to it. And our, our explanation that everything is random and purposeless just doesn't hold any water, really. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense when you see these patterns. These are sort of the, the antidote to that kind of nihilism. And I think an evidence-based antidote, because it can't be denied. People can choose to ignore if they so wish. But a fact remains a fact, and these links and correlations are being drawn constantly. So, I mean, if one wants to use a mind that is open in any way, they have to be examined and have to be taken into account. And I think that's the only way we can get any kind of a, an accurate reading of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's worthy of study um, and, care, you know, careful... Um, uh, take a careful look at it using um, rationality. You see, a lot of my work is kind of delving into what are thought of as mystical areas or areas of synchronicity or uncanny connections. Yep. But I'm able to maintain rationality through that process and not just become superstitious about it. 
And um, I think that's a key, is, is we now have these rational tools that we can uh, use to um, look at these um, unusual phenomena, and that can tell us something very deep about the world that we live in. I'm thinking of a comparison um, that I made uh, in, in quantification. The, I think it's the last image in the book. There's a, a, a couple of comparisons there. One is the magnetic field of the Earth, as illustrated by NASA, is this beautiful kind of cloak-like uh, structure surrounding the Earth. And I compared that with the magnetic field of the human heart. And there's definitely kind of a geometric similarity there um, of the heart field going, it has kind of a, a circle that kind of goes around the head and a larger kind of egg-shaped thing that goes around the lower part of the body. So it, it has a similar look to the magnetic field of the earth. And then when you think of um, the word earth and the word heart, it's really, the, the, first of all, they're the exact same letters. And uh, if you just take the H off the end of earth and put it on the front, you have heart. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's kind of profound that, it, you know, our heart is in some way a, a fractal of, of the earth, you know, and, and we have this love for the earth, you know. Um, another another comparison I made was there's this um, this picture that was taken of of the sun and the moon from a spacecraft that was kind of far from earth. And in that photograph, the moon is um, quite a bit smaller than the sun disk. Normally from the earth, of course, the, the moon and the sun disks are equal size, which is kind of a miracle in itself. But in this particular photo from the Stereo B spacecraft, the moon is um, like a small disk um, in the middle of the sun. And then that kind of rang a bell in my mind that I had seen that before. And I, I was able to find that picture. It's in Gray's Anatomy. And it's a picture of the human ovum surrounded by the corona radiata, which are these cells that kind of radiate out from the egg that look very much like the sun. And then inside of that egg, you have the nucleus of the cell, which looks just like the moon in, in the, in the uh, astronomical imagery. So here we have this kind of fractal repetition of something we see as above and then something we see so below. And this is the kind of wisdom that I'm kind of tapping into with this, um, this work I'm doing in Secrets in Plain Sight is sometimes I get these really great aha moments like that um, that are kind of a key to realizing that we're part of this pattern, this pattern that extends in both directions. We're kind of in the middle. It goes down into the cell and it goes out into the cosmos. And it's a it's a thing of beauty, it's and it's alive. The universe is alive. Matter, you know. Another thing is that you can look at matter as this inert substance that's separate from you, which is the kind of prevailing notion in science. Or if you look at the universe as something that's in you, and that now you become the deity. Um, matter is alive, just as alive as you are. 
And in fact, we have evidence that this is the case. In quantum physics, they know that the atom is composed of 99.9999999999% nothing. Mm. There's actually no substance to it at all. It's all a work of imagination. And yet we haven't really um, understood the implications of that for like, well, then who am I? <laughs> you know, if I if the atoms of my body don't exist really, then who am I? But, you know, it doesn't take anything away from from your, your lived life and who you, you are in this life. Mm. It's just as real to you. It's just a, it's a, really just a perspective shift is what I'm talking about. I think so. And I think as well that nature leaves us little clues should we care to open our eyes or our minds to them a little bit. Uh, just as you were speaking about correlations between nature and the human body and uh, different numbers, I was just reminded of um, a study that I read before um, showing the links and the, uh, the physical clues that exist within nature when trying to let us know what's good for us and what we should consume or how we can heal our bodies or reach um, max maximum physical potential that are there in nature. For example, uh, one that springs to mind is the humble walnut. And if you crack open the walnut and have a look at the actual nut inside itself, it looks like a human brain. It's no coincidence then that the walnut is particularly good for brain management and brain development and that kind of thing. And another example, I think, was a kidney bean and the kidneys. Um, the mushroom, when you slice it in half, the shape of a human ear. And again, very, very good for hearing. And again, it just reminded me of those, those little clues that nature leaves us. And it's almost like you have this, this uncanny ability to take the clues and combine them with other little clues that you found that were seemingly unconnected and just join those dots which gives this pattern or this fascinating picture or the, the, the overall jigsaw that very few people have managed to do so far. Yeah, well, well thank you. Uh, I, I feel sometimes at my best I'm on that path and I, and I come out with these, these coincidences, these, these um, keys that help us um, look at our lives in a different way and look at um, yeah look at the universe as an organism as a as a consciousness uh, rather than um, something that's dead and I think that makes all the difference into into your life outlook you know um, do you live in a in a universe that that is that supports you and supports patterns and uh, or do you live in one that really, essentially, there's no meaning at all? You know, I, I think it's easy to make a choice there. I think absolutely. And I think most people are on a quest to discover for themselves, whether they realize it or not, that things aren't dead and meaningless. And nobody likes that idea. I mean, we're predisposed towards the spiritual and the mystical. And I think modern society kind of cloaks that or throws a veil over it quite often and a lot of people become overly rational or overly physical in their way of thinking or logical and I think the work that you're doing is is really good kind of an introduction to opening the right brain through some left brain correlations or in a way that might appeal to those who are fascinated or almost locked in with logic and scientific rules and that kind of thing that, that that's for me it's the link between the two sides of the brain almost the left and the right brain and people 
quite often assume that they are mutually exclusive and I don't think that's the case at all but the one body of work I have come across that seems to link them best for me and I can only speak for me is the work that you're doing and in particular quantification well thank you very much and I, I think that you know that's a great way of describing it is the kind of connection of left and right hemispheres connection of art and science um, it's you know I think in the last several hundred years humanity has developed its left brain capacities in a great way with science and, and technical um, development mm. um, and that was necessary and in a way science still retains a trace of its of its beginnings as a reaction to religion as a reaction to um, kind of the irrationality of superstition it was necessary for us to close that down and say um, okay that's all hogwash now and we're not going to think of that anymore we're going to test everything and we're going to be very left brained about it but I think we kind of sold, our sold ourselves a bit short there and we, we threw out too much um, I think that we can use our rational capacities to look at kind of woo woo <laughs> subjects or um to look at life through a right brain filter more. Yeah. Uh, but and I think that's sort of our natural growth uh, is to reconnect with our heritage there um, that we've temporarily, at least in the last few hundred years, uh, put aside. But I think it's, it's a time of reintegration now, of uh, connecting left and right brains. And that's really kind of the secret of Freemasonry is, is in balance. Um, and it's it's also going back to some like the um, the Ida and Pingala uh, currents in the spine. Are, when you have them in balance, the Kundalini energy will rise up the spine. Mm. So it's it's sort of like balancing the masculine and feminine energies within you. And and when you have that balance right, then suddenly you're able to resonate with these patterns as above, so below, and you start to see these um, these patterns more. I don't know about you, but when I feel like I'm on my path, I look at the clock and it's 11.11 or 3.33 or something like that. It happens just way more than would be st you know, statistically uh, possible. Um, I, I, I have this kind of um, connection with the clock or, or with the odometer in my car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These things just, just happen um, when, when I'm in the right frame of mind. Yeah, I experienced the very same thing. The ones for me, funny that you mention it, are 11.11 and then the 24-hour clock, 22.22. They seem to be the ones that, uh, that occur. I'm at my most productive. Um, I, I go into, I suppose, the zone would be the words I would use at those times more frequently, I notice, than any other time. And mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned as well then resonance. Have you noticed any patterns or correlations that link to the Schumann resonance and the number 7.83 and the Earth's magnetic resonance? Yeah, I, and I think in, um, in Secrets in Plain Sight, Volume 1, I mentioned um, the, the connection there is that middle C, which is sort of in the center of our range of hearing, yeah. is 33 octaves above the Schumann resonance. I think I can't remember exactly. It's it's 33 octaves or 32 overtones, or maybe I have them reversed. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, you have a 33 and a 32 there, connecting the Earth with human hearing, 
and uh, I think that's very beautiful. It mirrors the degree structure in the Scottish Rite, for example. On the uh, Great Seal of the United States, there are 32 feathers on one wing of the eagle and 33 on the other wing. Um, you know, and 33 plus 32 is 65, which kind of connects with the 6 and 5 analysis that I've done. Um, it These patterns are, are there, and, and uh, you know, just waiting for us to uh, to delve into and, and and unlock their 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 resonances and their meaning in the world. And just to make a popular cultural reference as well, um, there are a number of people who are doing work now that I haven't properly delved into myself at this stage. But uh, music is my profession, and some of the musical works that have stood the test of time I mean from Mozart to Bach to more recently artists such as the Beatles uh, Jimi Hendrix people like that the notes that they're using with their biggest songs and biggest works there are patterns that are mirrored in the natural world and again the Schumann resonance comes into it and it seems to be those that are most um, harmonious with these overall vibrations and energies and resonances are the tracks that embed themselves in people's consciousness the most and hence become the biggest sellers for record labels or whatever. But uh, I think there's no doubt that there is a massive link there as well between music and you mentioned the TV show Grey's Anatomy and the symbolism used. And we see symbolism used time and time and time again. And there's no coincidence because when people such as yourself or Marty Leeds or any, any other people who decode symbols and who manage to apply a certain numerical language to these symbols. And when they do that, you can see why they are being used and what they are linked to, be it Egyptian times or the pyramid or whatever. There's always a code and they're following that code. So no matter where we look or what we do or what it is that we're into in our daily lives, the codes remain the same. So for me, it's music and I notice various patterns and bits and pieces in music. Um, and that just fascinates me because again it's a link between us it's a link between somebody who might be I don't know an Inuit at the North Pole and somebody who's down at, in the bottom of Argentina those links remain no matter how different their obvious cultural leanings are that's right um, you know, are you aware of, of in music there's the, the move to um, retune um, instruments to 432 hertz as opposed to 440 hertz Absolutely, and again, why the 440 was used in the first place is, I mean, there, there is speculation that it was used to disrupt the natural harmony of music and to, uh, to change the brain state, which made it easier to sell ideas through music to people. And there's a, I think there's a kind of conspiracy theory that there was actually a Nazi who was the one who um, did that change. That's right, yeah. I don't have it to hand. I'll see if I can look it up here while we speak. Yeah, I think there's some evidence that that, that might have been the case. Um, yeah, but, but by shifting the musical um, tuning point to 432 hertz, it connects with the cosmic sequence. You know, the sun's radius is 432,000 miles and when I say something like that, if you look it up, you'll find that that's something like 99.8% accurate. But the left brain will look that up on Wikipedia and say, that's wrong. It's not exactly 432,000 miles. You see? Mm. It's 433 whatever. But, it, it, you know, really what you should do is figure out how close that is. And if it's 99.8% accurate, 
that's pretty good, you know? Um, but we have this, our left brain has this tendency to reject things that don't perfectly fit in the box. Yeah. And the right brain has the capacity to notice correlations and to hold that uh, correlation as potentially carrying meaning. And so what I'm trying to do is bring those together and not just have wild meaning like, you know, it's about 300,000 miles, so I'm going to call it 432. Well, that's too far. That's not even close. Yeah. So you have to, you know, main, you know, look at these things with the right brain, but with a critical eye. So you have to use the left brain with it to, um, to bring it, these correlations into, uh, into focus, I to having so. a, a fine point on it. Definitely. And it always fascinates me how somebody who might, just as you've described, dispel a notion because of that slight uh, 0.0-whatever percent calculation that's out. But these very same people in everyday commerce are happy to round amounts up to the nearest five or the nearest ten. So, I mean, the capacity is there for us to do it. It's ingrained, it's inbuilt. And I think a lot of it just comes down to somebody's paradigm or perspective. Yeah, that's right. Um, for ex- let me just give you a few 108s that I found in the cosmos. Mm. Um, this, the polar diameter of Saturn is 108,000 kilometers. The Saturn's orbital period is 10,800 days. Venus's orbital distance is 108 million kilometers from the sun. Earth's orbital velocity is 108,000 kilometers an hour. The sun's diameter is approximately 108 Earth diameters. Earth averages 108 solar diameters from the Sun, and the Moon averages 108 lunar diameters from the Earth. So we have all these 108s, and then there's 108 stitches on a baseball. The top of the FM radio dial is 108 megahertz. We have these 108s all over the place. It's one of these numbers that subconsciously we kind of groove with it, you know? And it's, you know, it's part of that cosmic sequence it's almost musical in in its appeal somehow um yeah it's just uncanny it's one of these these keys that um the more of these so-called coincidences that you see the more you you can take it um and uh you know take it seriously absolutely and just to go back to music for a second we were talking about the 44 hertz um, I found online here uh, Dr. Richard Valashek, who was a nat- Nazi engineer. He was the guy who first discovered that uh, they could develop a sonic cannon that would, using pulse waves at 44 hertz, literally shake a person apart from the inside out uh, just using sound waves. Nice. There, there you go, you know, and I mean, that's essentially the frequency that is used for modern music. If you tune into a radio, that's the frequency that you're listening to. If you look at the frequencies that are used to encode MP3s, it's the same thing. And um, yeah, it's just fascinating to see where that came from. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't, yeah, I think it would be nice to kind of go with that trend to shift music back to something more in harmony with with the whole pattern. Uh, I think it might have a profound influence on on people. I've heard the story that in ancient Egypt, uh, the government regulated music which seems very kind of draconian to us today. Mm. But, you know, they um, they didn't want music that was really disturbing. They wanted music that was harmonious. 
and consequently they their civilization lasted for 3,000 years um, I wonder if that had anything to do with music but it might have because it kept it kept people connected and um, I've also heard the story that um, in ancient times they had like a 24 hour chanting that would go on and when people got tired more people would come in and they'd keep the chant going and essentially that created an enchantment on the land where everyone was in phase with each other and uh, they were all essentially in harmony with each other and um, so when, you, when you're in harmony with your fellow humans you, you feel that you have more in common with them you, you want to cooperate more than you want to compete and I think that's a beautiful way of using music to, um, to stay in tune with everyone else I think so. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And I think you've also uncovered large portions of the code to harmony. And I think that, to me, it seems to be what your work is about or where it's leading and that of so many other people out there as well. Because we all want to reach a harmonious state. It's what's best for us, for our, our conscious levels as, as singular entities or as a part of one universal consciousness, which is what I believe we are a part of, as opposed to being individuals per se i think we can have an individual perspective on the overall bigger picture and that's what we're doing at the moment but i think essentially the work that you're doing is the code to that and i think if more people are willing to look in that direction and to actually take on board the pieces of the jigsaw that are being linked for the first time in a long long time most certainly certainly in the mainstream anyway i think people will derive benefits from it and if even it's a more open mind or a more open approach to the world around us I think people if they look at things with an open mind suddenly start to notice for themselves and I think that is far weightier or meatier for somebody than necessarily watching a YouTube video or reading a book or listening to you or me chatting about this I think when people start to experience and feel things for themselves that's when they really begin to grow and that their own resonance starts to change and harmony is a key word we've used it so many times in this conversation for me that is at the centre of everything that it is that we all should be doing and most certainly is at the centre of your work as I see it yeah, I think harmony uh, is one of the, the four uh, most important studies uh, in, in the quadrivium, um, and it's one of the keys to the, to the, the, you know, the universe, essentially, is, uh, is music, um, for sure. Uh, this discussion reminds me of a, of a building that's being constructed in Manhattan right now called 432 Park Avenue, and I wrote a blog post about that one. It's interesting that that one, um, they tore down a, a building at, that used to be called 440. Um, and at the address was 440 um, something. Let me look it up. It was um, 440 Park. Yeah. And um, the owner purchased that building for $440 million and tore it down <laughs> and then changed the address to 432 Park. And uh, that's interesting because essentially he's shifting from standard tuning to the Pythagorean tuning. And the, um, the building height is 864 times 5 feet. Each floor is 8640 square feet. There are 2016 windows. So these are all um, 
members of the cosmic sequence, you know, 216-864-432. The building happens to be 33,333 feet to the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) (laughs) Just goes on and on, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, 333 kilometers to the House of the Temple in Washington, D.C., which is sort of the one of the centers of of the uh, the kind of cult of thirty three, if you will. Mm. Um, Do we know who owns this building, I, Scott? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Do we know who owns this building? Um, yeah, it's um, developed by um, Maclow, uh, Harry Maclow, designed by Raphael Vignoli. But um, I don't know if these gentlemen are aware of these codes in the building and I would speculate that they might not be. Um, I, I just think this is the way things happen. This is a very significant building. It's the tallest residential tower in the Western Hemisphere. If you don't count the controversial spire on the One World Trade Center, mm. this would be taller than that building. So, very significant building. And when there is a building of such significance, somehow or other, these codes get into it. And you could say, oh, well, it's all a conspiracy. It's, you know, clearly these people are, you know, doing this on purpose. Well, I'm not so sure. They might be, and I don't rule that out. But on the other hand, I've seen so many of these things that I speculate that these things just happen. And yet, it's not random. It's clearly designed. There's consciousness behind all of that. And the question is, where is that consciousness? You know, who is ultimately responsible for that? And I don't have an answer to that. I think it's just a gateway to asking more and more questions, more interesting questions as you go. And I often think the more questions we ask, the more answers that we feel as opposed to learning. I'm a big believer in feeling and quite often it's very hard to articulate a feeling, but you know what it is all the same. And I think, uh, I mean, the, the more I look at your work, I found the same thing with the work of Marty Leeds and quite a number of, I suppose, alternative studies of Egyptology. I think there's just a feeling that things are harmonious and they're resonating at a particular level and to me that feels right and while I can't explain to the listener or to you Scott why it feels right or what that does for me on a physical level I just know that it improves my outlook on life in general and how it is I live my life and I think it just has a positive effect on me on possibly a subconscious level or perhaps it's an interdimensional level I don't know but there is a positivity there that doesn't exist when that harmony is, isn't surrounding me so I mean very badly articulated on my part but no no I think that you're, you're saying it you're, you're, um, you're bringing up a point that I, I haven't really pondered much which is essentially that um, there's a musical component to these to these harmonies that gives you a feeling like you might get when you listen to a great song. Yeah. You know, you're just like, you're in, you're grooving with it. You're, you're just, everything is right in the world, you know? It's yeah, just yeah, a great I think song. you're right. And, and it's, it's that kind of feeling you have, like, wow, just, I'm at the top of my game, you know? And that's the kind of thing that you can almost get high on these numbers, mm. um, you know, in a, in a very 
safe safe way that you know gets you in tune with the cosmos yeah I, I totally get that and for anybody listening to us now saying right the lads are completely off the rockers that's completely crazy the example you gave there of music is a very good one imagine your favorite song how does that make you feel well it's making you feel that way for a particular reason and there are so many different reasons and it's up, up, up to us to discover those reasons for ourselves and i think there's no doubt that the work that you're doing has that effect it certainly does on me and obviously does on so many people because these patterns wouldn't exist otherwise yeah there, there's something that's that's already there and and i'm just noticing that a little bit um here i, I just came across this this um quote I want to read uh, from my blog Mm -hmm. at an average rate of 72 beats per minute in one hour the human heart will have beat 4,320 times in 12 hours or 43,200 seconds the heart will have beat 51,840 times the great pyramid slope is 51.84 degrees so there we have these cosmic numbers connecting with the great pyramid yeah you know, connecting with the human heart. Um, you know, we're just inextricably connected with these patterns. They're part of us. You know, we have 33 bones in our spine and so on. It just, it's these, these patterns, once you start unraveling them and, and noticing them, they're just so interconnected with everything else. It's kind of a challenge for me. It's like when I have an interview or I'm making uh, a new video, where do I start? You know, mm, yeah. I, I could kind of start anywhere and it, it will lead to everywhere else. So into the future, what is the plan or is there a plan? Is it completely organic for you now at this stage, Scott? I mean, do you have a plan that you're going to write a book a year, or a book two, every two years, or is it just as you discover more and more, you decide to document them? What's the plan for the next couple of years or months or even decades, whatever it might be. Okay. Well, um, on one level, in my in terms of my research, I just sort of follow my inspiration wherever that might go. For example, um, this year, in starting in January, I started making illustrations, and I just felt like I was uh, on a roll. And I made so many illustrations in in uh, two months' time. I had like sixty illustrations, and so I it became clear that I needed to make to publish this as a book. And so that's that's how quantification came about, sort of organically in that way. But I also do some longer range planning and think about, okay, what am I going to do next? And um, I'm working on a television show right now, a series. So um, right now I'm in the in the early stages, but um, I'm hopeful that that will um, reach a larger audience. Because I think that right now, Secrets in Plain Sight is really a niche audience. Mm. Uh, and I think it has a potential to be a little bit more transformative for people if they were to encounter some of these patterns. And so that's my hope with a with the TV show uh, concept. I'm also writing a novel. I've, I've written about a third of it. And I think that's coming along really nicely. Um, and I, I don't really want to give the details on the novel or the TV show right now because it's um, still so fluid but um, yeah those are kind of longer range um, projects that I'm working on I also have to pay the bills and I'm doing um, AutoCAD tutorial videos at lynda.com 
and uh, that you know that's a good way for me to um, to take care of those practical realities. Good stuff, and of course the books are available on Amazon. And tell us about your website as well, and any other plugs that you want to get in. We'll get them all up on the website too on our Alchemy Radio website. So my my um, I have two websites. There's scottonstott.com, and that's about my professional side. Um, you can find all my tutorial videos there on different software programs and books. I've written 11 books uh, on those subjects. And um, there's also secretsinplainsight.com. And there you can find um, my videos and books. And now I've added T-shirts to the mix also. So if you'd like to wear Secrets in Plain Sight, you can do that. Hopefully you'll come back. I feel like we could chat for hours about this. It's just a subject that, uh, again, that word that resonates with me in particular. And I'm absolutely fascinated by the work that it is you're doing. So hopefully you can check in and we can have an even more in-depth conversation in the future. But in the meantime, Scott Onstad, it's been fantastic speaking to you. And uh, best wishes to you and everybody in British Columbia. And of course, on the island, I forget the name of the island again that you're on. Cortez Island. Cortez Island. After one of the world's most heinous conquerors <laughs> he, he was certainly tuned to 440 as opposed to 432 enjoy the rest of your sunny day and we'll be in touch very very soon I have the power you have the power we have the power Scott Onstad it's been a pleasure speaking to you today on Alchemy Radio thank you for joining me thank you so much Alchemy Radio
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations. Every little helps, so anything you could spare at all goes a long, long way and helps keep us afloat. The donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated and indeed a huge thank you to everybody for your recent help and support. We really couldn't do it without you. Until next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze.